There are huge numbers of people in this country who don't know history. But how, if you don't know history, how disabled you are. If you didn't have any history, you might never believe what you were told. If you knew some history, you would know how often the American people have been lied to. You're listening to Question Culture History Edition with Brian, Steve, and Lornette. On these monthly episodes, we discuss American history using Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States as our guide. On this episode, we'll be discussing the Civil War. How's it going, Steve? How's it going, Lornette? Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and is looking forward to the new year. Hey, everybody. Lornette Vestal. Um, Check me out at Evolving Man Project. Um, Also, check me out on Twitter, the Evolving Man, LBV. You can check us out on uh, Facebook and Twitter at uh, Cute Culture um, on Facebook or Twitter. You can also check out my debut novel with my lovely wife, Bernita Haynes, Even the Faders. All right. So um, I I think an important thing, and I like that he started the chat, Howard Zinn started this chapter, the chapter about the Civil War, um, talking about slavery and kind of the way slavery was ingrained into economics because that's a common myth you hear from apologists now who are like, oh, it wasn't, the war wasn't about slavery. It was just about the, the, the South just wanted to secede from the North. And it's never, I actually had a professor in college try and like pull that excuse. And it's like, well, yeah, but why did they want to, you know, secede? And it was because they had two different forms of economics were developing where the North was developing factories and industry and had, you know, wage slavery, where the South was still using the what would become outdated form of, you know, chattel slavery for crops. Um, so you kind of had this economic division. But to say it's it wasn't about slavery is extremely ignorant because that's exactly what it was. Slavery was embedded into the economic system of the South. Well, slave trade was the capital for capitalism, as I, as I say quite often on his podcast. So when people are like, it was about states' rights and all that stuff, um, take my man, Immortal Technique, who also coined the term uh, slave was slave trade was a capital for capitalism. And he talks about the song Industrial Revolution, and he talks about basically what the what free what actually freed the slaves was Industrial Revolution. And I like in this um uh, in this chapter about the Civil War and Howard Zinn's book because I, I I learned it originally from reading this book. But also did some other readings. So I'm a history, you know, I was a history major in college, like Brian. So shout out to the history nerds. Um, you know, we painted Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, as kind of like this. You know, he came and freed the slaves. It was the goodness of his heart. It's nothing is never like that. And and also, Abraham Lincoln was an abolitionist, so it wasn't like he. He might have thought slavery was wrong, but it all depends on the audience. And even still. He never thought that blacks were equal to whites. So he was, you know, people were like, well, he was a man of his time, but also John Brown existed in that time. And that motherfucker tried to have a, a slave rebellion. So <laughs> you can't just say that he was a politician. Let's just say that. What it, exactly. What it was. And I like Howard Zinn. So I'll read how, you know, since I, he says it better than I can, but Howard Zinn kind of points it out, like who were taught our heroes. Like we're taught that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, when in actuality, John Brown did a lot more to free slaves than Abraham Lincoln did. Um, I mean, Howardson also talks about that 
black you know black people were the main drivers the the, the backbone of the ab- abolition movement i b- uh, believe he refers um to it that way which i think is accurate but um just to start off the chapter he says the united states government's support of slavery was based on an overpowering practicality in 1790 a thousand tons of cotton were being produced every year in the south by 1860 it was a million tons in the same period 500,000 slaves grew to four million a system harried by slave rebellions and conspiracies developed a network of controls in the southern states backed by the laws, courts, armed forces, and race prejudice of the nation's political leaders. It would take either a full-scale slave rebellion or a full-scale war to end s- such a deeply entrenched system. If a rebellion, it might get out of the hand and turn into ferocity beyond slavery to the most successful system of capitalist enrichment in the world. If a war, those who made the war would organize its consequences. Hence, it was Abraham Lincoln who freed the slaves, not John Brown. In 1859, John Brown was hanged with federal complicity for attempting to do by small-scale violence what Lincoln would do by large-scale violence several years later, end slavery. And I think that's an interesting point, not only pointing out, you know, kind of the hypocrisy of saying Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves instead of John Brown. But I've also heard people because, you know, on especially on like lefty Twitter on John Brown's birthday or the day of his execution, you know, people will post things about how awesome he was and everything. And there will always be someone who'd be like, actually, he was a murderer, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, like again while i don't support violence that's kind of taking your ball you know your eye off the ball of there was an entrenched horrible violent torturous system of slavery that he was trying to end and literally the whole country went to war and was killing each other over this like a few years later so to point to him and be like oh he's a murderer that that's kind of the classic you know conservative thing of just kind of looking at a small moment instead of taking the whole situation in context oh it's deny and deflect that's all it is in the history. Exactly. Because even like one of the slave masters he talks about, um, who like, you know, was one of the good slave masters who treated his slaves well, but also had a fucking jail built on his plantation for his fucking slaves. Like if they got out of hand just to keep them in check. So I'm like, they, what type of, <laughs> it was an inhumane system. And, and it wasn't like John Brown freed the slaves himself. He, he was in, he was inspired to like have an uprising, but the people who slavery, it was the abolitionists. And, and, and he tossed, and I like the fact that Howard Zinn talks about the differences between the black abolitionists and the white abolitionists who still had their, you know, um, their white privilege and their um, racist blinders on to like be like, we're gonna, we're saving you all. But they were like very moderate. <laughs> Makes sounds like a lot like today. Oh, we, we, well, you guys will get free. Just we're just gonna need to work with Lincoln. We'll make some anti treat your slaves bad laws and then and then one day you'll get free just wait just keep on waiting where the black abolitionists was like we we should be free like tomorrow we should be free like yesterday so i like how he kind of points out the divide and i think it's an important lesson even for activists now today um especially like white male activists um even if your heart's in the right place if you're fighting on the behalf of another marginalized group of people your role is probably best to shut up and listen and lend help wherever possible, not try and lead it for your own motivations. And that's kind of how I felt, you know, reading about this, like these abolition, you know, like you said, that white ab- abolitionists were basically trying to run 
the abolition movement be like, we should do it this way, this way. And it's like, maybe you should let the people most affected by this torturous system be the ones to tell you how you should conduct it. Because <laughs> they are, I mean, he has a, uh, there was a quote that he had in here. He said, um, how can slavery be described? Perhaps not at all by those who have not experienced it. So it's like only the slaves, you know, know how truly bad it is and, you know, can tr- truly lived through it. So perhaps you should turn to them when discussing strategy rather than, you know, trying to lead it your own way. Um, I don't know if you guys had remembered this. I completely had forgotten about this, but I didn't know that slavery, um, the import of slaves, was actually made illegal. I didn't know that 18- either. I was actually going to ask you about that since you're the yeah, history major. Yeah, I had completely forgotten about that, that the import of slaves had been made illegal in 1808. Now, he mentions— Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they, they still were doing it illegally at that time, but most a lot of the Western nations that were practicing slavery were slowly outlawing it, and they stopped importing. So that's when they started the kind of slave breeding system that they had where, you know, it was kind of just like— you, you make your own slaves and all that type of stuff. So that was also a fucked up inhumane system in a way, just like, you know, kidnapping slaves from I mean, black men, black men and women and children from Africa and send them over here in bondage. But there was still there's still because there's a town in um, Alabama called African town or Africa town. And um, basically what it, how that town was founded was it was a, one of those illegal trade trade ships where they had slaves on it um this is like after 1801 i forgot like what year i think it was like 1820 or 1830 and anyway that that ship came here and i think the slaves on that ship rebelled and and then they you know they came to port and it was a you know big legal court case and basically those people were you know on that ship were granted their freedom and they kind of stayed in that little part of alabama and created like a little town I mean, it's one of the most impoverished towns in Alabama to this day, but but it's a really interesting history. So th- that that's very true, Steve. It was interesting to me. So, okay, so they made slave importing slavery illegal in 1808. But then, as you know, he mentions a historian who researched a topic who estimated that perhaps 250,000 slaves were imported Ill- illegally yeah. between 1808 and when the Civil War started. Yeah. And so they're still doing it. To- that totally what oh yeah we're, they were still doing it yeah it was a, yeah, yeah and you know it just reminded me it of modern forest at all it re- reminded me of modern day with illegal immigration how the you have desperate people who are coming here in search of of jobs of money and so you know you have all these republican politicians that are funded by big business who are like you know illegal immigrants illegal immigrants they're going to take over the country but really, the businesses are the ones that want this dirt poor, cheap labor. So they are. So they're the ones giving jobs, giving money. You know, even though it's little money, to these illegal immigrants, and then they fund these Republican politicians who are like, "Oh, they're taking over the country." So then it gives the government justification to arrest them, and you know, treat them inhumanely and things like that. And it's such. And then you have these Republicans get poor people, you know, uneducated people in our country to then hate the immigrants, even though it's all just a big circle jerk that big business is causing. And I'm like, so, you know, when I read this about how they were in illegally importing slaves, I'm like, I'm just like, oh, God, something's never fucking changed even 200 years later. Yeah, because it was just like a, a couple of weeks ago, they found out in this, the great state of Georgia that I live in, that there was basically a, around, they were using illegal, um, uh, undocumented 
immigrants has on on in work farms and making them pick fruit and stuff like that at gunpoint and, and like two of the women were assaulted um, they had no rights they had to stay where they were working at um, they were basically bought here illegally and forced to work and it was basically like they were modern day slaves and this is in 2021 uh, Georgia and they they implicated a lot of people it was a big um, investigation but how many other states are doing this how many companies are benefiting on things like this and that's kind of like the history of slavery and one thing I do like how he points out in this chapter is about the the stereo the stereotypes that came out and racist stereotypes that came out about black folks uh, once they got their freedom and then also I like how he, he talks about um, it was emancipation um, slavery without submission because he talked about all the ways the slaves rebelled it was Nat Turner's rebellion it was Denmark the the the, the the conspiracy of Denmark Vesey, who was going to lead a slave rebellion. He also talked about how some poor whites, some of them actually helped out the slaves. And then the one crazy story about the slave woman who gave the uh, homeless white person some food from our plantation. And she was like, received like 150 lashes for it. And how they were talking about how like in slavery, um, basically the racist stereotype was like, oh, the African slaves, like, you know, we're, they like slavery. They're happy slaves. And the guy, the slave, talked about, you know, I wasn't dancing and singing and all this stuff because I was happy. You know, we had these things or moments to ourselves because we had to, like, kind of not go completely insane. We had to, like, give ourselves some type of hope. Uh, what did it say? Hold on. I want to read that because that was really, really uh, a powerful one. Well, while you're, while you're looking for it, back to your point about that situation in Georgia, I would argue any state that uses prison labor is using slavery. Mm-hmm. And and as we'll read later, the 13th Amendment that most people probably know, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime. So they left it in the law itself that you can be a slave if you're a criminal. Exactly. And, and that's how they did a backdoor slavery and has been going on in this country. But what the guy said, his name was John Little. He's a former slave. They say slaves are happy because they laugh and are merry. I myself and three and four others have received 200 lashes in a day and had our feet in feathers. Yet at night we would sing, dance, and make others laugh at the rattling of our chains. Happy men we must have been. We did it to keep down trouble, to keep our hearts from being completely broken. That is true as gospel. Just look at it. Must not we have been very, we, we must not have been very happy. happy. Yet I've done it myself. I just have cut capers and chains. So it wasn't a thing that these slaves are happy or anything like that. They were just kind of dealing with the outstanding, horrible circumstances that they were in. And they found joy in that. So it's not, in fact, a matter that, oh, yeah, the slaves are happy. And look how they're good. Because I remember Bill O'Reilly, when he had his show on Fox News, was just like, oh, well, Michelle Obama said slavery was bad. But they had three square meals a day. They had clothes. They had they were working. Now they're all lazy and having babies and stuff. I mean, I mean, I'm not racist, but for real, like that was a good system. Why were the blacks complaining? You know, and then uh, I got my guess on Uncle Ruckus and Uncle Ruckus. What do you think? Oh, I think slavery was great. I think it was wonderful. Back in the wonderful days when we was all slaves, everything made most sense back when the white man was in charge. <laughs> and that, that's that's what you watch Fox News and, and also the, the mythology. So it's like a lot of mythology during slavery about black people that were racist stereotypes. And even after slavery, 
So I like how Howard Zinn kind of highlights that in this chapter. I thought to that point, like later on in this chapter, he talks about some of the plantation owners who were like surprised that their slaves were like deserting them during the war. And stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it goes to show how these dumb made up myths and stereotypes, they really infect people's brains and people think that that's reality. And then, yeah, like you said, oh, these slaves are running away when they get the Why? I thought they liked me. I thought everything was <laughs> Oh, good. and like the one, art, the letter, the, the guy who was escaped from slavery, who um, went to the North and started like printing the paper and stuff like that. And then his old slave master, who was a woman, like, uh, was like, you know, I'll pay you a thousand dollars to come back down and be a slave again. And, and we treated you like our own children. And he, he, he sent his, he published her rebuttal. The rebuttal he sent to her, like, made it, like, public, like, knowledge in his, through his newspaper. It was basically like, oh, you said you treated me like your own child. So did you did you beat your child with a whip? Did you make them work from sunup to sundown? Did you deny them basic human dignity? <laughs> so because it was like, put oh, them up for like, sale. Yeah, did you put them up for sale? Like, that, that, that's that's how you treat your children? No. Did you raise them to be fucking cattle? No. And so that's the, that's the funny part about it because that's kind of how, like, those stereotypes. Oh, they were... We treated them like, because I'm pretty sure a lot of slave masters who were like, oh, I, I treat my slaves like, like they're all my own family. Well, do you, when your kids act up, do you fucking tie them up to a post and fucking give them 150 latches? I don't think so. It reminds me of like when work, you know, like a, a company, they'll be like, oh, we're a family here at, you know, Walmart or whatever, but we're going to pay you slave <laughs> wages, you know, like, but then they exactly. try and promote like, hey, you can tell us anything. We're a family, you know. Um, we'll fire you right before Christmas. And it, Yeah. <laughs> The truth is they cared about him like an investment. Exactly. They didn't want to kill. They couldn't kill them because having owning a slave and having a slave was a quite an investment. But they could, they made, they had to be brutal to maintain the subjugation. So when Kanye West says like slavery is a choice, which I think of all the things Kanye has done over the years publicly, I think that's one of the most damning things he's done because it, it made stupid people who don't know history be like, yeah, why, why did they didn't? It was a choice. They just stayed there. And it's like, it wasn't that fucking simple. It was a, a very, and even the ab, black abolitionists knew, because I remember um, um, OG Harriet Tubman met with um, John Brown and actually would have joined him, um, but she got sick. And then uh, Frederick Douglass, who like, admired John Brown and, and knew of his plan, but was like, I don't think it can work with the firepower that the, the government has. So we, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you can be, you can have a violent insurrection, but in and, and, and the same with King too, uh, during the civil rights movement, he, he wasn't, people think, oh, he just loved everybody and wanted peace. He was a Southern black man. He knew how to shoot a gun. He owned a gun and he had a gun to protect his house. However, he like knew that guerrilla warfare of black people against the U.S. government would just give not only the government, but racist white people who would collaborate with them, be deputized, an excuse to just murder indiscriminately black people because they're they're uprising against the system and that's that's the problem what happens when you have a federal government that becomes too powerful when you do violently rebel against it they can completely wipe you out so you have to be very sophisticated in your resistance it and and it's tough because i'm not one who sit there and say that i don't believe always an armed rebellion is, is necessary in insurrection um obviously the the folks who were in slavery the nat turner rebellion when they were just they just massacre white families at the white families this is at the you know these are generations and generations of black people who have been in this horrible system so they saw every person who could be an enslaver has an enslaver so when they reacted they were reacted violently 
to you know put it down and that, and obviously that slave rebellion was crushed but it, it's it's spooked the slave owners to create you know, even crazier laws because i think after the nat turner rebellion um that's when we had the uh, uh, uh fugitive slave laws if well i, read I the, like uh, book correctly i like that and that this was really interesting. He shared a quote that a a, a slave owner uh, actually put in a newspaper. Um, but I think it, it it's important, and it shows how on edge the country was leading up to the Civil War. He said during a period when neither the state nor the nation faced any sort of exterior threat, we find that Virginia felt the need to maintain a security force roughly ten percent of the total number of inhabitants. So. For a country that's not at war, for you know, no exterior threat to for ten percent of the population to be turning into a security force, basically to keep the the institutions alive, it just just goes to show the kind of the state of the country at the time. Isn't that like some sort of cognitive dissonance with the plantation owners, like where they have this fear of resurrection, yet they get surprised when their slaves don't like fight for them during the war or something, right? Yeah, it it well <laughs> it really does. Well, it was interesting too cuz they talked about how for a while poor whites and slaves were helping each other. Um I think I have it yeah. booked later on, but there was there was it, there was a a really I don't know, I guess you could call it heartwarming story where well it wasn't heartwarming, but there was a a black slave who helped feed some white people that were starving to death and she ended up getting like 50 lashes or something for it, but it just goes to show the humanity that people can still express even at the risk of, of harm. Um, how, you know, for all the evil people in the world, there's good people who actually stick their neck out to help others, even, you know, with no benefit to themselves. Well, we had talked about how in previous chapters, how the government had to make laws specifically to like, like that punished like white people helping black people, mm-hmm. which just goes to show like kind of into your story. You just showed like, they had to like create the culture in a way a little bit and what was to, kind of what was kind of a like a genius evil thing they did was they turned the poorest whites they started to pay them to be the field overseers so yeah. that way they could you know the poor whites had enough money where they'd want to future police the yeah right right exactly yep. exactly slave patrol um and I wish I didn't have to do this in this era I wish we would all understand that slavery was fucking horrible um, but as Arnett brought up, and it seems like it's happening more and more where people are coming up with like excuses where, oh, they had it good. And, you know, just to, to break that mentality, um, I just want to read a couple quick chapters just about the conditions for slaves. Um, Howard Zinn writes, a record of deaths kept in a plantation journal now in the University of North Carolina's archives lists the ages and cause of death of all those who died on the plantation between 1850 and 1855. Of the 32 who died in that period, only four reached the age of 60. Four reached the age of 15, seven died in their 40s, seven died in their 20s or 30s, and nine died before they were five years old. But can statistics, statistical records, um, but can statistics record what, would, what it meant for families to be torn apart when a master for profit sold a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter? In 1858, a slave named Abraham Scriven was sold by his master and wrote to his wife, give, give my love to my father and mother and tell them goodbye for me. And if we shall not meet in this world, I hope to meet again in heaven. And so 
you know, the statistics shy side shows you can't put any spin. Slaves were dying way younger than what would the average people at their time. They were working horrible fucking conditions that led to an early death. So right and, there, and, the and, the, and the fact alone, that they like receive lashes for any infraction, um, real or imagined, and the fact that like their your family members can be sold, like you can you can be a mother and watch your daughter or son be sold. You can be a husband and watch your wife get sold. Or you can be a husband and, and, and you get sold from your wife. Not to mention the, the, the risk of sexual assault uh, that all the slaves face. Um, because if, if, if the one of the masters or one of the master's family made advances on one of the slaves, they, could, they had no agency to be like, oh, no, I don't want to have sex with you. Or I do want to have sex with you unless I have a consensual relationship because it was a power differential. They were the slave master and his family were the owners and the slave was the priest of property. So they had no agency. So they could do what they wanted to men, women, child, anything like that. So when people try to make, oh, it wasn't so bad. And, and I think people are just complaining. No, it was a horrible, no human being should be in that condition. It would make American slavery the worst of all slavery. The slavery existed throughout human history, and some people would excuse that. Well, slavery has always existed. Humans have always done that. Well, in other societies, even the fucking Romans and Greeks, people could buy their freedom, and they weren't. It wasn't like a slave of, of, of a person had a child. That child was automatically born a slave. Slavery, and then also when nations or, or groups fought against each other, and they took captives and slaves. Those slaves could be incorporated into the society and eventually buy their freedom. Whereas in the United States, you had the scarlet letter of like your skin color. And then they made these ridiculous laws where like the jump one drop rule where like even if you had like one grandparent that might have been part black. Oh, that means you were black, too. And therefore, you should be a slave. And when they had the fugitive slave laws, um, when that came into to existence and it seemed like the black abolitionists were truly against that. Um. And the moderates were kind of like, let's reason with them and work with them. And not only was this fugitive slave laws in place to recapture slaves that had run away, but it was also it was a subversive way to capture free black and white men, mean black men and white and black women and children from the north and bring them into bondage. And if you read the book, 12 Years a Slave, that's exactly what happened to that gentleman. Um, or you can watch the uh, movie, uh, which is a very, very uh, depressing, but well acted and really really un I mean it's, the thing is the book the movie only scratches the surface of what the book talks about about the conditions of being a slave and this is a perspective of a man who was free who was a learned man and he was kidnapped and, and tricked into uh, he was kidnapped he was drugged and, and, and kidnapped and found himself sold on the slave market despite being born a free black man so uh, the fugitive slaves laws were a threat not only to slaves who escaped but also free black men and women at the time. It was interesting, too, with the Fugitive Slave Act, and I liked how Howard Zinn pointed this out, and I think we should all remember this because it's true in current times. The law is what's on paper, but profit is the real motivation for most humans, and since the biz big business controls the government, the government may put things on paper but not really follow them, and Howard Zinn points out how the import of slaves had been illegal since 1808, but the government didn't really enforce that part. A bunch of the illegal slaves were still coming into the country where the Fugitive, a uh, Fugitive Slave Act was enforced very harshly because it had to do with profit, maintaining control of people for profit. So 
it's always important to remember, you know, like these laws that are written on paper, that's for us, for the poor folks. That's not for the fucking business elite. And the business elite, no matter what laws we might get through, they will do what they're going to do if the if the motive is there and they have the power to do it. Um, but I did want to point out, too, because I hear this along, you know, on probably coming from like Tucker Carlson or some shit. But you hear that, too. Oh, if slavery was so bad, then they would have had mass revolt. And that's not true because of how things worked out. Just the might of the U.S. military and the policing system and everything at the time didn't allow for that. But that doesn't mean that slaves didn't exist. I'm going to read directly from the book here where he talks about that. He says, um, there was wide range of resistance to slavery. The resistance included stealing property, sabotage, slowness, killing overseers and masters, burning down plantation buildings, and running away. Running away was much more realistic than armed insurrection. During the 1850s, about a thousand slaves a year escaped into the north to Canada and south to Mexico. Thousands ran for short periods, and this despite the terror facing the runaways. The dogs used in tracking fugitives bit, tore, mutilated, and killed their prey. So at the risk of being eaten alive by fucking dogs, thousands of, of slaves were running away you know, looking for a better life. So to act like th- they enjoyed it is just fucking... No, it, it's absolutely... It, it's asinine to even say that. It's, it's quite ridiculous. They, they they enjoyed it. They were happy. Everything was fine. And, and we're not going to teach this history because it makes our, makes our kids feel bad. But it's like, what about the people who had to live through that? And let's be honest. Like, people who, who were alive in 1970 who were, like, kids... But they technically had a, a great grandparent that could have been a slave for for black folks. That's what I mean. It's not that long ago. It's like your grandparents' grandparents were alive yeah. when mm-hmm. this shit was going on. Yeah, <laughs> you know the shit that taught your grandma her ABCs were the people who lived through this shit. What's that called? Like Harriet Tubman died when like the you know when Ronald Reagan was born. Right. Right. Well. Yeah. Our, so it's that, that not that long ago. I mean, Ronald Reagan was an old ass man, but still, that, that's that's not too long in the, in the, in the scope of history at all. Speaking of which, a real fucking badass Harriet Tubman. I yes. mean, she was a badass in every sense of the word. Well, we're not going to spend the whole episode talking about her, even though she deserves more than that. Um, yes. But I did just want to read more. a quick passage and a quote from her because she's such a fucking badass. Um, Harriet Tubman, born into slavery, her head injured by an overseer when she was 15, made her way to freedom alone as a young woman, then became the most famous conductor of the Underground Railroad. She was nine. She made nineteen dangerous trips back and forth, back and forth, often in disguise, escorting more than three hundred slaves to freedom. Always carrying a pistol, telling the fugitives, "You'll be free or die." She expressed this philosophy further. There was one of two things I had the right to: liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. For no man should take me alive. And so, I mean, to risk. To be honest, too, if I had survived through the things she survived through and then became free, I'd probably count my, you know, lucky stars and just try and live my life, you know, by myself in secrecy on my own, where she's such a fucking badass. She went and, you know, saved hundreds of other people and risked her own life to help everyone else. So, And not to mention she was going to be part of the John Brown uh, insurrection and the fact that she commanded forces during the Civil War of black and white troops. So so this woman... Was, was 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 fucking amazing. That, that's all I, all, all I can say. It was a, a true revolutionary in every sense of the word. 
And I'm kind of glad they never end up putting her on a twenty dollar bill because I I I think you know just her being the company of all the other people on the, the dollar bills who are all mostly slave masters. Uh, shout out to George Washington. <laughs> uh, maybe Abraham Lincoln on a five dollar bill, um, but he he didn't think too highly of the black people either. So let, let's be honest. Um, Some of his quotes in this chapter are just oh, yeah, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was he was a whatever audience like, he's he speaking to, like the moderate politician back then like oh i can see both sides of the argument even if one side is absolutely horrible but i see I, i'm in the middle can i you know what i actually want to read since you brought it up i want to read a quote from frederick Douglass because you know as we always recommend in this podcast read your own history read as many books as you can about frederick Douglass because he was a badass in his own right um so i just want to read he has a cool quote from him um in here that i want to uh, read about this was in Frederick Douglass's autobiography as he recalled his first childhood thoughts about his condition. He says, Frederick Douglass says, Why am I a slave? Why are some people slaves and others masters? Was there ever a time when this was not so? How did this relation commence? Once, however, engaged in the inquiry, I was not very long in finding out the true solution of the matter. It was not color, but crime, not God, but man that afforded the true explanation of the existence of slavery. Nor was I long in finding out another important truth. What man can make, man can unmake. I distinctly remember being, even then, most strongly impressed with the idea of being a free man someday. This cheering assurance was an inborn dream of my human nature, a constant menace to slavery, and one which all the powers of slavery were unable to silence or extinguish. And I think that goes to show the power of just the human condition and acting on our, our, our truths and how we really feel. I mean, if you were a slave at the time, you literally had the entire system built against you and built for your demise and destruction. And the fact that slaves figured out a way to, you know, get get free or get more free kind of gave me a little bit of hope, hopefully the good people in the society can figure out a way to fucking survive climate change. Cause right now, again, we have an entire system built on destroying the earth and it's going to take everything we fucking got to figure a way out of this. Yeah, let's be honest. That, that system is capitalism. And, and that was the same system that propped up slavery. It's, it's at the, the world's problems in modern times in my civilization uh, that creates the inequality and the structures and the destruction of the, the planet are all rooted in capitalism. And I read an article today and, and a guy pointed out like, no, when I talk about capitalism, I'm not talking about the, the person who owns the bakery down the street or that person who owns the microbrewery. Um, they have to get up and work for their money. They're, they're not the capitalists. The people, the capitalists are the, the Jeff Bezos of the world. And, and during the slave slavery, the richest people on earth during slavery lived in Mississippi, the Mississippi plantation owners. So it wasn't like every white person owned the slave. Um, but, you know, Howard Zinn talked about in earlier chapters, how do you get this system to maintain itself? And it's kind of just giving the poor whites just a little bit of advantage over the, the enslaved Africans and, and the Native Americans. And also um, put into place these laws that divided them, um, because when they came together, those three groups, the poor whites, the Native Americans and the slaves, um, it was cause for trouble because they outnumbered the rich and the elites who owned everything. And they could like overthrow that. So they had they did a lot of things to kind of keep people apart, uh, as we saw in that quote with the slave woman who um, gave the poor homeless white family food and was um, beaten for it. It was like no solidarity. And that's just, that's 
that's this country's history. Like, let's take groups and divide them amongst each other. Because he talks about when the Civil War started, even the poor whites that were you know, forced to fight because they couldn't afford, like, the other rich white people to pay, like, $300 to get out the draft. And instead of attacking the rich people who were making them all fight, whether it's on the, on the Union side or the Confederacy, they decide to lash out against the um, black people who are in the same plight as them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting, and I thought think it also highlighted how another myth about the Civil War is that the slave the South was pro slavery, and the North wanted to end slavery, and that that implies that everyone in the North was like, yeah, we're not racist, and so. But you literally have these riots where white people are angry that they're like, I forgot the quote, you know, but they're like, we don't want to go fight for N words, you know, whatever. That's right. not our job. And then they run around killing black people. So that shows how yeah. racially enlightened the white folks in the North were at the time. Oh, know? exactly. And also it shows that, you know, it, they picked the easy targets because it wasn't the black people that were making to go fight this war. It was the rich white people. It was the rich white people of the North. It was the elite white people of the South who wanted to like, maintain their system of slavery so they can continue to be rich and the northern white people are like we have these factories now and we could just make slave wages versus slave slave wages i mean we can wait you know people who earn slave wages versus actual owning slaves but like we'll give them a little wage um because we're not that we're not that inhumane um but we have these machines and they could do way more work than like a bunch of humans and they don't cost a bunch to maintain so that was the thing that was the real riff right there and Abraham Lincoln was just trying to maintain it because he didn't want to be the president to see to see the, the United States be undone under his presidency of the young country. Um, he wanted to maintain it at all costs. And that, and like he quoted, if he could free the slaves to do it, he would he, he would do it if he could if they stayed in bondage and he still maintained the country has one United States. He would have did that, too. So it was all about maintaining the union by any means. And w- one thing I want to bring up, I don't want to forget, just because I thought it was fucking badass. So as Renette Lornette brought up earlier, the Fugitive Slave a- Act was passed in 1850. And not only did that hurt runaway slaves, but free black men. And I thought there was one cool act of resistance in Syracuse, New York, um, where a runaway slave who had escaped his, his uh, master's house had gone to college and was now a minister in Syracuse. He got arrested once this slave act, the Fugitive Slave Act, was passed. But abolitionists in the area, um, during his trial, the 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 man's name was Jerry. A crowd of abolitionists used crowbars and battering rams to break into the courthouse, defying marshals with drawn guns, and set Jerry free. And I was like, "Ah, oh, that's so fucking badass and awesome," you know? Oh yeah. Any. Any small act of resistance in this uh, in this society is important. Well, it's the reason why they're trying to ban the people's teaching of people's history in the United States um, in schools and libraries across the country because, God forbid, regular everyday people realize the power they have and also that the power they have by working together um, across racial lines um, and even, even across class lines because the only, only class solidarity in this country that we see truly united is that of the elites in the class above them that hold maintain the elites. So uh, I, I think that was pretty badass. And I also like um, when um, Frederick Douglass talks about uh, the 4th of July on Independence Day in 1852. Um, it's like, 
his famous um what black folks call the fourth of july because <laughs> that's what it is like you know freedom and democracy and i'm like you're a slave at that time you're like what the fuck it's not freedom I, I don't have freedom i can't fucking do anything i want to do on my own volition um and as frederick Douglass says fellow citizens citizens pardon me allow me to ask why am i called upon to speak here today what i have what have I or those who I represent do to your national independence? Do with your natural independence. Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence and extended to us? And I am, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to our national altar and to confess the benefits and express the devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. What is America, what to American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals him to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, a boosted liberty and an unholy license. Your national grace, graceness, greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denouncement of tyrants, brass-footed imprudence, your shout of liberty and equality, holy mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons, and your thanksgivings. All of your, uh, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, empathy, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Savages. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will. Roam through all monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America, search air out every abuse and when you have found the last layer of facts by the side of everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me for that, for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. <laughs> I think that's kind of true for sure. Oh, that's very true. Even to this day, like the talk of freedom and democracy. I mean, this is the country where people have barely have two weeks of vacation and in some places, like people who work at um, the Amazon factories, or just just recently, those tornadoes that tore through the Midwest and South um, at the beginning of um, this month, people were told that they left to save their lives from an incoming tornado that they had ample warning to know that t- dangerous tornadoes were probably touching down in those communities, that they left, they would get fired. And people died in that candle factory up in Kentucky and uh, uh, an Amazon distribution plant in Illinois. So Jeff Bezos literally has his employees fucking dying to ship shit off. Fuck, fuck that. My, my Amazon package doesn't get here. I'm not going to be mad. And Amazon has more than the money to make up the loss. Jeff Bezos is one of the richest men who ever fucking live. And that's how his employees are. That they can get fired for trying to save their own life because they want to go see their fucking family again. That's what's so fucking annoying is like I would gladly wait an extra seven days to get my box if I knew the people packaging the box were paid correctly and had health care 
and weren't fucking working. And work Brian, the funny thing is, we do have a system like that. It's called the USPS, the United I know right? United yeah, Parcel Service, which they're trying to gut and destroy Democrats and Republicans. Because God forbid we give people working dignity. You know, at one time you could actually go bank at the at the um, at the post office. Yep, yep. And you can still do that in other countries. You can go vote at the post. Like that, that would make everything. It's the only it's the only government institution that has always favorability ratings, and they're gutting it every fucking year. Well, and it's funny, it works like clockwork because they're going to gut it and then people aren't going to like it because they'll be like, oh, it sucks, it doesn't work. And it's like, well, it doesn't work because it's being underfunded. So that's yeah, and then what you're going to be stuck with FedEx, UPS, and Amazon? Psh. Not to mention all the foreign shit we do. Wars and oh, yeah, so terrorism, those... I would call it for sure. Dropping nuclear bomb on Japan. I So I thought it was very interesting. Did you guys, I never watched, just because historical movies usually fucking suck at presenting, they usually just, you know, are America propaganda. Did you, either of you guys see that Lincoln movie that won all those Oscars? Vampire Slayer? (laughs) (laughs) That was a bad movie. That was a good movie. (laughs) No, I I did see the Lincoln one, and, uh, you know, it's definitely. uh, How was uh, it? What's that guy's name who always wins the Oscar? Uh Anyway, that guy. He's all, um, Daniel Daniels. What's his fucking name? Um, Did they do a good job of portraying, you know, Lincoln as kind of like the moderate he was who kind of struggled no, it was, to it was, it was very much hero worship and kind of like yeah. making Lincoln kind of this grand old figure. I mean. Because in, in the, you know, reading this, Lincoln really comes off like a textbook Obama type politician. Because like. Is, well, they were from Illinois. Well, they, you know, well, Lincoln was actually from Illinois. Uh, right, but Obama I mean, I like, was born in like okay, so it, he, he he they Howard Zinn shares this letter that Lincoln wrote to his friend in 1849, where he says, "I confess, I hate to see the poor creatures, referring to black people, hunted down, but I bite my lip and keep quiet." So like, okay, maybe he's like, eh, "I don't agree with this, but we gotta, you know, politically keep it, keep it, you know, hush hush." And then it was interesting to me he shares a speech from that Lincoln made in Chicago in 1858. Where he's basically talking about, you know, we need to put this race stuff aside and, you know, that other races are inferior, that we, you know, we should, we should all, all men are created equal. But then he just went a little bit further south to Charleston, mm-hmm. Illinois, and was like, oh, yeah, I am in no way trying to bring out about the political and social equality of the white and black races. So it's like literally he's, he has like, he was personal- a politician. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's just like being like a textbook politician and when he was when he was talking to like his buddies he would say like this war was not waged for any purpose of overthrowing or interfering with the rights of established institutions but to preserve the union yeah so he he's such a politician basically yeah that's all he was he's not a hero or anything like that he's a mm-hmm. politician <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and i and i do recognize i do like in the book that um even the 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 blacks that black folks at the time realize that yeah he is a politician but we can use him to get our freedom. Um, and he talks about the, uh, the great uh, Wendell Phillips, with all his criticism of Lincoln, recognized the possibilities of his election. Speaking at Trenton Temple in Boston the day after the election, Phillips said, uh, if a telegraph speaks the truth for the first time in our history, the slave has chosen the president of the United States. Not as an abolitionist, hardly an anti-slavery man, Mr. Lincoln consents to represent an anti-slavery idea a pawn of 
on the political chessboard. His value is with his position. With fair effort, we may soon change from him for a knight, bishop, king, and sweep the board. Uh, or queen, sorry, and sweep the board. So, I, I, you know, when, when what pisses me off nowadays is people talk like this here. We get a Biden there and like, you know, we, it's a chess move. And all. Now, this, this, they knew that, no, this is like some real chess board pawn plan. Like they knew Lincoln would have his back against the wall and would have to end up eventually freeing the slaves. But it wasn't that, and they, but they were smart enough to not to put him on some pedestal. Like he's so great and wonderful. No, he was an ends to justify means. And that's, in modern political talk, you can't talk about that nowadays. It's like this weird worship of these politicians, no matter how shitty they are, as long as they're not Trump or some other bad yeah, Republican. That's the main thing nowadays is, oh, well, it's not Trump. Yeah, so. At least he, this they, back then they knew, like, as Lincoln was not an abolitionist. He was not. He was probably not anti-slavery. I mean, even if he was a little anti-slavery, he was fine with it. It wasn't, it wasn't, it all depended on his audience, who he was talking to, what he said about slavery, because he was a politician. And I think it's important to remember, too, we they understood. How can I put this? So, like, as, as we're discussing this podcast, we view Lincoln as just a regular politician. He was no hero. Being that he was no hero, his election was a progressive move for the country because there's certain politicians that are, can be pressured into doing things. So, like, Bernie Sanders would succumb to pressure more than, like, you know, Joe Manchin or or, um, or Joe Biden. <laughs> right. Or Joe Biden. So it is important to pressure and get these politicians in there. And really Lincoln's presidency. And I'll just read a, a quick paragraph here. It, his election really was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the Civil War. Um, Howard Zinn writes, Behind the secession of the South from the Union, after Lincoln was elected president in the fall of 1860, a candidate of the new Republican Party was a long series of policy clashes between South and North. The clash was not over slavery as a moral institution. Most Northerners did not care enough about slavery to make sacrifices for it, certainly not the sacrifice of war. It was not a clash of peoples. Most Northern whites were not economically favored, not politically powerful. Most Southern whites were poor farmers, not decision makers, but of elites. The Northern elite wanted economic expansion, free land, free labor, and free market, a high protective tariff for manufacturers, a bank of the United States. The slave interests opposed all that. They they saw Lincoln and the Republicans as making continuation of their their pleasant and prosperous way of life impossible in the future. So when Lincoln was elected, seven southern states seceded from the Union. Lincoln initiated hostilities by trying to repossess the federal base at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, and four more states seceded. The Confederacy was formed and the Civil War was on. And so it, it, it kind of, I think that paragraph is important because it shows that while it was the war was fought over slavery, it wasn't fought because it was a moral battle because slave, you know, the North believed slavery was wrong. It was like all wars, an economic war. Exactly. So now we're going to start talking about all those great and interesting battles and generals, right? <laughs> well, I, it's funny that you said that because I did want to bring that up. How we're not going to discuss that shit. One, I think there's. A million. If you're interested in that shit, all the battles and generals and what guns they used and what war, there's literally a million books you could write read about that. But 
I kind of, I liked in college, we started to learn other histories. I felt like history before that and history in mainstream media, that's all you ever hear about is battles and wars and, you know, different tactics and weaponry that was used and stuff. And if you want to learn about that stuff, that information's out there, but we're not going to talk about in this podcast, one, because I feel like it's overdone and it kind of takes away from the bigger picture of what was going on. Exactly. And so it was interesting, you know, as war tends to do, it will wear on the people fighting in it and the society in general. I did think it was interesting. Um, Howard Zinn wrote, um, um, it was only as the war grew more bitter and the casualties mounted, desperate um, desperation to win heightened and the crit- criticism of the abolitionists threatened to unravel the tattered coalition behind Lincoln that he begun to act against slavery. Um, a historian put it this way, like a like a delicate barometer, he recorded the trend of pressures. And as the radical pressure increased, Lincoln moved more towards the left. So really what was happening was he was fighting this war and the North had the support of abolu- abolitionists. But as the war continued on, abolitionists were like, look, if you're not going to you know do what we want you to do, we're not going to support you. And so that's when Lincoln was like, all right, well, I'm going to fucking lose this war if I don't have the support of these people. So that's when he was pressured to start moving left on the, on the situation of slavery. I think, uh, I think it was Chris Hedges to that point talks about just because of like the corruptible nature of like gaining power and being in a position of power. It's like, he talks about like your goal shouldn't be to like take and seize power, but it should be to make power afraid of you and to like, strike fear into the people with power so that they act in a way that is in your interest. And I think that's a very good lesson to learn because I do think that's the way it should be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was also, he pointed out, um, as the war continued on, you know, the abolitionist movement grew and I didn't remember this either. So it was in September of 1862, Lincoln, Lincoln issued his preliminary, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It was a military move, giving the South four months to stop rebelling, threatening to emancipate their slaves if they continued to fight, promising to leave slavery untouched in the states that came to the North. So <laughs> it goes against this whole, like, Lincoln was against slavery and wanted to emancipate the slaves. Like, at first he was like, hey, if you stop fighting, you can keep all your slaves. Like, that was his exactly, first, yeah. like, try, <laughs> you know, at it. Um, but obviously it didn't work. The South still kept fighting. So when he did uh, do the Emancipation Proclamation, though, it declared slaves free in, the, it declared slaves free in those areas still fighting against the Union, which it listed very carefully. And said nothing about the slaves behind Union lines. And then, uh, as Hofstetter put it, um, the principle is not that a human being can not justly own another, but that he cannot own him unless he is loyal to the United States. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it's also important to point out that um, how deadly of a war the Civil the Civil War really was. Um, Howard Zinn writes, um, the Civil War was one of the bloodiest in human history. Up to the time, 600,000 dead on both sides in a population of 30 million, the equivalent in the United States of 1978 with a population of 250 million would be 5 million dead. So it's, it was quite a fucking bloody war. And, you know, kind of you can 
listen to all you know read all this the the normal civil rights talking about you know brother versus brother and stuff so it really was an absolutely insane war and i kind of think we've lost perspective you know so many wars nowadays that we're conducting are overseas and so this was like the last time you know it was really on american soil and they had to you know, americans had to like firsthand deal with deal with the war is the bloodiest like to to date is the bloodiest war world war Two? For the globe, yes. For Amer- yeah, for, for the Americans, it's still the Civil War was the most dead, uh, killed the yeah. most Americans. No, yeah, but I was talking about the globe. So yeah, World War Two. Yeah, World War Two. Um, I think it was also cool. He he had you know a few passages talking about all the fucking badass shit that a a, a bunch of um slave you know former slave women did to help the war effort. Um. That was one funny part, too. I, I want to find where he talks about how the South actually considered freeing the slaves because once they started losing the war. Um, well, they did at the very end. They, like, at the very end made the pass the law, but by then it was, like, too late. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here, I found the, the, the actual chapter. Um, he writes, The Confederacy was desperate in the latter part of the war, and some of its leaders suggested the slaves, more and more an obstacle to their cause, be enlisted, used, and freed. After a, a number of military defeats, the Confederate Secretary of War, Judah Benjamin, wrote late in 1864 to a newspaper editor, ed- editor in Charleston, It is well known that General Lee, who commands so largely the confidence of the people, is strongly in favor of using the Negroes for defense and emancipating them, if necessary, for that purpose. One one general, indignant, wrote, If slaves will make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. Well, yeah, you don't say, you fucking moron. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it just shows the fucking, like, hypocrisy of, like, it just shows that it's like all fucking economics for these people and they're just willing to do anything to maintain their power because like their whole thing is like slaves aren't people and we should be able to do this and now that they're backs against their wall oh maybe we should free them you know it's just so fucking <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just unimaginable the hypocrisy and the stupidity oh yeah that that's that's the that's the, the big you know with racism it's kind of like dehumanizing a whole another group of people and then you quickly realize if you scratch the surface how that's bullshit because those people are just as human as you are. Uh, and then I like post um, the reconstruction and he discussed um, kind of the failures of the reconstruction and how people are all trying to make a book, uh, especially the northerners. Some went down for humanitarian humanitarian reasons, um, but it was really just kind of like um, some people were going down there to kind of make a quick book um, to capitalize on a destabilized region and, and come off on top. Also, um, what's interesting during the Reconstruction period is how right after slavery, so many, um, well, despite the fact that, you know, it was, the time was sexist. So there were black men elected to to Congress and to state houses, Um, but also kind of like the schools in the South being uh, forcibly integrated uh, with black and white children. And kind of like this whole passage about uh, what black children learn in school, which I'm like, they would never teach this in school today this is crazy but uh he writes uh how is then has a black child went to school they were encouraged by teachers black and white to express themselves freely sometimes in catechism style the records of a school in louisiana kentucky no sorry louisville kentucky teacher now children don't you think that white people are any better 
than you because they have straight hair and white faces? No, sir. Teacher. No, they are no better, but they are different. They possess great power. They form this great government. They control a vast country. Now, what makes you different from them? Money. That's the stu- <laughs> students. The teacher. Yes, but what enabled them to attain that? How did they get that money? Students. Got it off us. They stole it all. Stole it all. all stole it off we all. What the? F- could you imagine a teacher teaching <laughs> that to a third grade or fourth grade class today? I mean, the fact that we're battling over critical race theory, which is an obscure theory in, in, in black legal scholar scholarship that has been used on the has a culture war front, is insane now. That's um, what I was gonna say. It was like by today's standards, that teacher would be fired for teaching critical race theory. Oh yeah, like oh my god, like the 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 white people benefited from race slavery and racism, and America stole its wealth off the backs of. Um, Men and women in bondage. How dare you teach that type of actual history? How dare you? Well, and one thing, because I do want to talk about Reconstruction and the kind of the backlash towards it. But just one more thing about the war I wanted to bring up was just that Howard Zinn writes extensively about is just the condition of black soldiers during the war. Um, Howard, Howard Zinn writes, most slaves neither submitted nor rebelled. They continued to work, waiting to see what happened. When the opportunity came, they left, often joining the Union Army. 200,000 blacks were in the Army and Navy, and 38,000 were killed. Um, And basically, he says, black soldiers were used for the heaviest and dirtiest work, digging trenches, hauling logs and cannon, loading ammunitions, digging wells for white regiments. White privates received $13 a month, and Negro privates received $10 a month. So... Basically, they had to fight the hardest battles, do the hardest jobs, and were paid less than their white soldier counterparts. God bless America. And I, I am happy, though, that you read about Reconstruction, um, because it is kind of this interesting—it just shows how, you know, society goes, you know, it's kind of like a pendulum and swings back and forth. So after you have the Civil War— Black people were elected to offices. They started to form their own communities and towns and that started to become profitable. Um, they started attending schools and everything. But then as soon as that happened, there was a swift kickback in the other direction and racism really started. And then really, I mean, I would argue the period after Reconstruction when Jim Crow's starting to build, a lot of black people were worse off even than during slavery. Um just due to the violence um and also because after the war a lot of the white plantation owners were allowed to buy buy up buy back up all the land yep so you had you know black people yeah they were free quote unquote now but they were still tied to the land for profit um I'll read from Howard Zinn's book. He wrote, um, The Southern white oligarchy used its economic power to organize the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist groups. Northern politicians began to weigh the advantage of the political support of impoverished blacks maintained in voting and office only by force against the more stable situation of the Southern return to white supremacy, accepting republican dominance and business legislation it was only a matter of time before blacks would be reduced once again to the conditions not far from slavery violence began almost immediately with the end of the war in memphis tennessee in may of 1866 whites on a rampage of murder killed 46 negroes most of them veterans of the union army 
as well as two white sympathizers. Five Negro women were raped, 99 homes, 12 schools, and four churches were burned. In New Orleans in the summer of 1866, another riot against blacks killed 35 Negroes and three white sympathizers. So, it goes, again, this just goes back to people with power. Like, fuck what happened during the war. Fuck what the country is going to be now. We have the power to commit these terrorist acts to get control back. So we're going to do it. And that's, ex- ex- you know, exactly what happened. Um, at this time, there was also a bunch of legal loopholes that were created to kind of, um, you know, we, we had these amendments to the Constitution, but then they basically allowed the Supreme Court, of course, which I would consider one of the most evil fucking organizations in the history <laughs> of the country, would always, you know, because it's up to them to interpret the law however they want. So, of course, all their fucking interpretations in the next couple decades always were to favor, you know, white power and and go against, you know, black people actually being able to live freely and support themselves and things like that. Um, It was also interesting to me how he points out, you know, once now that the Civil War is over and while they they still, you know, black people working on farms were paid, you know, horrible wages, it it still wasn't as lucrative as when they were slaves and their labor was completely free. Um, So a lot of the Southern powers started to turn their... Um, interest to coal and iron um, so a lot of these southern southern states especially Alabama um, coal and kind of mining for coal really became a main driving force for economic power in the south so the power dynamics in the south kind of shifted to more um, coal and things like that railroads and things rather than cotton like it had been in the past yep um, and then one just one more comment about what the the um, uh, black people experience after Reconstruction was over and this violence against them started to grow. Um, Howard Zinn writes, um, okay, says, perhaps Washington saw this as a necessary tactic for survival in a time of hangings and burning of Negroes throughout the South. It was a low point for black people in America. Thomas Fortune, a, a young black editor of the New York Globe, testified before a Semeni- uh, Senate committee in 1883 about the situation of the Negro in the United States. He spoke of widespread poverty, of government betrayal, of desperate Negro attempts to educate themselves. The average wage of Negro farm laborers in the South was about 50 cents a day, Fortune said. He was usually paid in orders, not money, which he could only use at store controlled by the planters, a system of fraud. The Negro farmer, to get the with the wherewithal to plant his crops, had to promise it to the store, and when everything was added up at the end of the year, he was in debt. So his crop was constantly owed to someone else. He was he was tied to the land with the records kept by the planter and storekeeper. So the the Negroes are swindled and kept forever in debt. sounds like modern day as for supposed laziness i'm surprised that a larger number of them do not go fishing hunting and loafing so it's it's just it honestly like reminds me of today you know it's like you're indebted you're enslaved and if you complain about it it's because you're lazy oh exactly but i also like um you know when this when black people were enslaved they were just happy slaves who just like liked their bondage and they were childlike and they had to be enslaved because we had to teach them civilization and as soon as you know they got a little bit of freedom a little tiny bit um black people in this country oh they're lazy they they they're tricksters they they don't want to do any good so all these like racist stereotypes about black folks being lazy when in reality um black 
people built this country and fought in every war in this country, including the Civil War. So it, it just kind of shows you how those stereotypes are there to maintain the status quo. Um, and sharecropping um, was one way to kind of keep people back in, in some type of servitude. Um, also, um, and also those debts, if those debts weren't paid off, you had debtors, debtors prison, um, which, you know, mean that if you go to jail in this country, thanks to the 13th Amendment, that outlaws all forms of slavery, except for criminal convictions, um, meant that you can get black people back into slavery without officially calling it slavery, but that's what it is, sent them to prison. So that's when you have the rise of the chain gangs and you know, fast forward centuries later, you have mass incarceration. Uh, there's a wonderful book out there called The New Jim Crow. You can check that out. Um, yeah, and there's lots of uh, civil Civil War books you can check out. Uh, they go into the battles and all that great stuff. Um, you can talk, you can read the autobiography of um, um, Frederick Douglass. And there's some other great books about uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, that you can check out too. And that time period during the Civil War. So definitely check those out if you can. And I like he ends this chapter kind of talking about the Civil War being over, but the new war that's going to be waged. And honestly, this is the class war, the war that's been waging for all of human history that defines American history. I mean, this was what the chapters we're going to be getting up here throughout the year in, the, in these coming months were really the biggest surprise to me. You know, when in grade school, high school, in, in mainstream media, we are never taught about the class warfare in this country and how it's been never ending and it's been a battle that's been going on forever and how many battles we fought and and so i'm really excited this year to get into that history um and howard zinn kind of talks about it being on the horizon after the civil war um he writes um another black man who came to teach at atlanta university w.e.b du bois saw the late 19th century betrayal of the Negro as part of a larger happening in the United States, something happening not only to poor blacks, but to poor whites. In his book, Black Reconstruction, written in 1935, Du Bois says, God wept, but that mattered, that mattered little to an unbelie- unbelieving age. What mattered most was the world wept and is still weeping and blind with tears and blood, for there began to rise in America in 1876 a new capitalism, a new enslavement of labor. And, you know, as always, uh, W.B. Du Bois is right on. And he's talking yep. about how, so with chattel slavery is over, but now you have the formation of wage slavery. And that war is going to be just as bloody, you know, as the civil, far more people have died because of poverty and wage slavery than died in the civil war or all wars in human history, really. So, um, I'm super excited this year in our History Edition episodes. We're going to be talking about all that history that's been hidden from us and really shows us who we really are as working class people in America. Yeah, and um, it parallels to the day with the COVID pandemic and and basically how the powers that be, not just in the United States, across the globe, but definitely the most blatant example is the United States about just like, oh, yeah, five days, uh, isolate if you have positive COVID tests and go back to work. And it's all about going back. It's all about keeping the economy running. And it's all about like you can either you can die for the the economy, and that's what it's always been about. Which is uh, makes me more as my heart to see um, workers like the Kellogg's workers, the Amazon workers uh, across the globe that are uh, uprising, the workers that are uprising here in the United States and in other parts of the world, taking on some of the biggest, most powerful corporations in the world, um, and, and winning their contracts um, because 
fighting, you know, we had to live in this shitty system of capitalism until we replace it with a new one. But um, we have the tools to, to fight it. And there are people out there who are fighting it. So I think we'll get to that history. But um, the Reconstruction period is this weird period in American history where we could have, and I think about the words, and uh, calling more technique again, when we could have been like, look, you know, our, you know, forefathers enslaved you because we were stronger, but, you know, we were wrong. And, you know, let's move on. But instead that, and that, that they could have been, a, it could have been a system. It could have been a, a, a time period after the Civil War where the United States could have came together and become that more perfect union that we always claim we are. And instead it devolved into the, the North basically making it, striking a deal with the South, removing the Union troops and leaving the black people in the South to fend for their own devices and re-ushering in the racial hierarchy that existed in the South. And it's not to say that that didn't exist in the North. It just manifests itself differently because another thing that the North likes to say is like, oh, we're not racist and horrible as the South. The Civil War is not fault because the North was just like, slavery is wrong and we're so good and we're going to fight it. Fuck no. It was all about economics. You had the Industrial Revolution, as I mentioned earlier, versus the slaveocracy. And it could have reconciled during the Reconstruction, but the war was pulled, it was, the rug was pulled very fast, backrooms deal was made, and as the WBs the boys said, the black folks were betrayed um, by the powers that be uh, during Reconstruction. And it recreated the New South, which was the Jim Crow South, which we'll also talk about and discuss having moved forward in this chapter. Uh, move, move forward with this book and, and how horrible it was under that Jim Crow system, which only l- technically ended in the 1960s, mm-hmm. which my parents were born in that time. So <laughs> not too long ago, my, my, my parents are still alive, born in the 60s. Well, I have a mom. My mom was born in the 50s. But still, there you go. That's that's what still baffles me about the, the people who. Oh, what are they complaining about? Slavery ended in the 1800s. It's like, yeah, as if it, you know, it was all fucking sunshine and rainbows after exactly. that. Exactly. You know, that we didn't. And and not to mention, these are the same people that like brag about their like high school football team winning. It's like, oh, okay, so you can't get over that, but black people oh, are exactly. expected to get over slavery. And the difference between Americans and Europeans is Americans think like uh, 50 years ago, oh my god, so long ago. And there's still different people, different groups and countries in Europe that still got beef with each other from like the Victorian era to the to the fucking medieval era. Like, oh fuck fuck those motherfuckers. They like they, they they came and killed Queen Elizabeth. Like what the fuck? So it's like <laughs> their history our history like we the United States has such a short history as a the United States. And we're like, oh it's so long ago, slavery. And it's like there's only a couple of gener only a few generations removed from slavery. Not that many. And damn sure not that many from Jim Crow South. And and we're still living in an era of mass incarceration. So, and and we'll get into we'll get into this. We're we're planning an episode on critical race theory, so we'll get into this a little bit for that one. But when reading this history, your lesson shouldn't be, you know, like for white people, because they'll be like, "What? You're going to teach me this, and now I'm supposed to feel guilty?" And you know, of course, you're not supposed to feel guilty for something that happened 200 years before you're born. But you need to understand how what happened led to the systems that are in power today and how things are structured today and how they still have a racist bent and still benefit white people. Learn this history, learn why it happened, learn how you can dismantle it, and then work in modern day to dismantle the the legacy of this system. Exactly. It's not to be, oh, God, white people are evil, so uh, I guess I'm sad now. That's not what should be happening. Exactly. It should be. 
it should be a tool to learn from to help dismantle in the modern day. Yeah, in order to understand history, I mean, in order to understand your future, you have to learn your past or you're going to be doing to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And I think that's the problem with our society is that we'd like to forget that these things happen or like, oh, so long ago. And it really wasn't that long ago compared to other countries with much longer histories like China, India, the UK, very long storied, complex, some in some cases triumphant, in other cases heartbreaking histories. Our shit is pretty, pretty new. Like yep. the United States is not even 300 years old. So it's kind of just like, there's probably a tortoise that's just as old as the United States <laughs> out here right now. So when people are like, oh, it was so long ago, why are you guys complaining? Blah, 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 blah. Look at what's going mm, on in funny. Chicago. The black people are just violent and lazy and dangerous. Those are just racist assholes, and they have no understanding of history. So we're, we're going to get into it, and um, I'm looking forward to it, uh, 2022. So let's do it, and uh, we're going to talk about more history. And we're going to be giving you the, the fire with the uh, Question Culture podcast. And, um, yeah, I appreciate all the people uh, continuing to listen to us as we continue to get uh, more and more listens. So share far and wide. Exactly. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for the support over the past year. I'm super excited about the guests and topics we have coming up for early part of 2022. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Q Culture. That's Q-U-E Culture. There we share additional information about the topics we discuss on the podcast. Lornette also posts more on his blog, The Evolving, the Evolving Man Project. And if you're sick of the world and just want to escape from it all, check out his book, Even the Faders, with, uh, by himself and his wife, Bernita. Um, or you can listen to our last couple episodes where we just uh, took a break from this stuff and talked about superheroes. Um, so thanks again, everyone, for listening. And remember to question everything. Everything. or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian, Lornette, and Steve and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian, Lornette, and Steve may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.